Are family annihilators always men? Not always, but according to Jack Levin, a professor of sociology and criminology at Northeastern University, people who commit these types of crimes, murdering their family, they are usually men. And these men kill people Levin calls their family unit, not only their spouse or partner, but their immediate family, the loved ones living within their residence, which often includes their children. In his book, Serial Killers and Sadistic Murderers, Up Close and Personal, which I have to say was a pretty fucking grim and intimidating title when I found this book, Levin talks about catalysts which can trigger family annihilators, like loss of employment, gambling away the family savings, or something that puts the killer in a position which makes him unable to care for his family. Or it's a different sort of catalyst like divorce, which means the killer is at risk of losing his family. Maybe he can't imagine life without these people in and out of his view every day, so he seeks to control the situation in any way he can. Professor Levin was interviewed by Newsweek magazine in 2009 about his book, and he answered a question I wondered when I researched this topic. Family annihilators aren't insane. Levin said in many cases these crimes seem to happen out of nowhere, although the killer may have suffered with a difficult situation for an extended period of time. It seems as if they snapped, but according to Professor Levin, some men plan these killings. They may invest months deciding what they'll do, how they'll do it, then put their plans on a shelf as what Levin calls a last resort. I researched theories about family annihilators because of a story I found while researching the death penalty in Pennsylvania. I've been conducting research about death penalty cases in this state since the early summer, in part to better understand these sentences in Pennsylvania, even though no death sentences have been carried out in our state in 20 years. This research feeds into a bigger project. While I'm sitting in the airport waiting to board a flight as I'm about to fall asleep, basically whenever I can find a few minutes between all the other episodes in various stages of research and development. So here I was reading up on death penalty cases in a rural county in Pennsylvania, the sort of community where many of us naively wouldn't expect crimes that warrant death sentences. And there was a reference about the first woman legally hanged in Philadelphia. She wasn't the only woman hanged in Pennsylvania. Seven women were put to death by a hangman's noose between 1800 and 1889 when Sarah Jane Whiteling was hanged in Philadelphia. I wondered about each of these women, but Sarah's name is the one that came back to me over and over, probably because where she lived, her crimes, her death, all of it happened in Philly. I wanted to know more about each of these women put to death in the 1800s, but especially Sarah Whiteling. As I learned more about Sarah and her crimes, I wondered if she was someone we'd consider a family annihilator, because Sarah murdered her family her husband, and her two children, not at the same time, although their deaths occurred within a matter of months. Was there a catalyst like the ones Professor Jack Levin spoke about in his book? What was her motive? Did she think she'd get away with killing her family? The American Anthropological Association reports that today, over 200 women each year kill their children. That's a gut punch. There are so many different reasons why crimes like these happen. Names like Andrea Yates probably come to mind. If you're in the U.S. and older than 30, you likely know that name, the mother who drowned each of her five children in the bathtub in 2001. Andrea Yates suffered from severe postpartum depression. She was found to be insane. 
Some women commit these horrible crimes out of revenge over a failed relationship. Others are suffering from mental health disorders. They may not be in control of their actions or emotions. But none of these examples or statistics seemed to quite fit Sarah Whiteling. Family annihilator, filicide, insanity, serial killer, some of these descriptions, or none of them, or maybe even all of them, could apply to this case. As I went back in time to later years of the Victorian era, I also learned something about Sarah Whiteling that reminded me of one of my earlier episodes, the Philly Poison Ring. What was it about the early days of Philadelphia that made poison such a frequent cause of intentional death? Can we apply today's true crime labels to century-old murders? At the end of the day, do these labels even matter to the victims, those who are gone and those left behind suffering? I'm Dina Marie, your host on this week's Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome Welcome to to Twisted Twisted Philly. On the morning of her death, Sarah Jane Whiteling prayed with the prison matron at Moya Mensing Prison. That's the same prison where H.H. Holmes spent his final days before his execution seven years later in 1896. It was summer, and I was surprised after looking at historic weather reports for Philadelphia and the surrounding areas how many tornadoes hit this part of the country in the 1800s, and how cold the temperatures were for June and July. None of this would have phased Sarah Whiteling. Throughout her incarceration, prison guards, physicians, even her undertaker, all remarked at what was often called her strong disposition. The prospect of her own death never seemed to shake Sarah. She remained calm throughout her time in prison. There were no protestations as she was taken from her cell in the women's wing in Moya Mensing Prison and moved to the men's wing, then placed in a cell not far from where the scaffold was built. Sarah's frequent retort was she looked forward to meeting her husband and children again in the afterlife. At 10.07 a.m. on June 25, 1889, Sarah Whiteling was hanged by the neck until dead. She was found guilty of murdering her husband John and their two children, Bertha and William, and the punishment for murder was death. It took seven months from the time a Philadelphia judge and jury passed that sentence until Sarah Whiteling was actually hanged, because so many people were shocked a woman could commit crimes like these. That's not an uncommon response. Even today, 130 years later, there are still times I find myself shocked at crimes committed by women, as if we are incapable of despicable acts. We aren't. Sarah Whiteling certainly wasn't, and the community of Philadelphia in 1888 hadn't seen a poisoning case like this. They certainly hadn't experienced crimes like these where an entire family was killed by the matriarch. You know how this story ends. I started at the end in the introduction. I'm taking you through the story of the murder of John, Bertha, and William Whiteling the same way I found it. And for me, this story started with the death of their wife and mother, Sarah. Sarah Whiteling murdered her entire family, which may put her into the category of family annihilators. But it didn't happen all at once, and there wasn't a specific trigger like the ones Professor Jack Levin described in his book. 
Sarah Whiteling moved to Philadelphia from Chicago after the Great Fire in 1872, which would have made her about 24 years old at the time. According to her neighbors in Philadelphia, Sarah lived in houses of assignation before her marriage to John Whiteling. While I took a guess at that phrase, houses of assignation, I was correct in thinking Sarah Whiteling was accused of living in residences where you could rent rooms by the hour which typically meant brothels. Sarah wasn't Whiteling when she moved to the city of brotherly love. She was Sarah Brown. Her first husband made the trip with her to Philly, but soon thereafter found himself in Eastern State Penitentiary. Sarah's husband died while he was in prison. Not long after, she gave birth to a daughter named Bertha. Having a child outside of marriage isn't something anyone blinks an eye at today. Okay, let me rephrase. Many people in 2019 don't see any issues with people having children when they are unmarried. But there are probably some people who would look at that situation the way many Victorian Philadelphians looked at Sarah Whiteling, like a woman of low class or low morals. Working a brothel may have been the only way Sarah could support herself, and birth control? In the 1800s, please! We struggle with women's reproductive rights and companies providing coverage for birth control as part of insurance benefits today. There were no options for women in the 1800s, unless those options were in back alleys. One of the aspects of this story I find so surprising is Sarah had a nine-month-old baby when she married John Whiteling in 1880. Bertha wasn't Sarah's child from her first marriage, which might have been okay with people in the 1800s, but she was the child of an unmarried woman who got herself in trouble. That didn't seem to be a problem for John Whiteling. Both mother and daughter took John's last name, and from everything I've read, there's no reason to believe John Whiteling treated Bertha as anyone other than his beloved daughter. Six years later, John and Sarah welcomed a son into their family. They called him Willie. The Whitelings lived on the 1200 block of Catawalder Street in Philadelphia, less than a block from Girard and 2nd Avenue. Would we call that Fishtown today, or is it Northern Libs? It's like right on the edge of both neighborhoods. There was nothing in Sarah Whiteling's confession about a difficult marriage. Most of her commentary from her neighbors happened after the death of Sarah's family. When I went looking for her catalyst, something that may have triggered Sarah to kill her husband, she told police her husband struggled to work on a regular basis due to health issues, but everyone else denied those reports. The only trigger I could find for Sarah Whiteling's murder spree was an age-old flaw dating back to biblical times. Good old-fashioned greed. A segment of Sarah Whiteling's confession was repeatedly quoted in newspapers around the country, not just here in Philadelphia and other parts of Pennsylvania, but New York, St. Louis, Cincinnati. Sarah said, I did not poison all of them at one time for fear I would be found out. So I thought I would poison them one month apart, then no one would suspect me. That's premeditation, calculated planning, not just planning a forethought, but timing everything spreading out her crimes, thinking it would spare her from being discovered or spare her from jail, and eventually spare her from the scaffold. It started with her husband, John. John Whiteling was 38 years old in the spring of 1888 when he began suffering horrible stomach pains. According to a neighbor, Sarah's eight-year-old daughter Bertha knocked at their door asking for assistance on behalf of her mother and father. Bertha said her father was sick and her mother needed help caring for him. Mrs. Gilbert, the neighbor, rushed to the Whiteling house three nights in a row, providing what she said was more care and compassion than John's own wife, Sarah Whiteling. 
Gilbert told police she had to convince Sarah to buy medicine for her husband, who was in constant, unbearable pain. Whatever ailed him was too much for simple treatments like lime water and hot compresses. By the third night, it was obvious John was dying. Mrs. Gilbert begged Sarah to come to her husband's bedside, but Sarah refused. She told her neighbor it was too much to watch her husband die. So it was Mrs. Gilbert who held John's hand and soothed his pains while he passed away. That might sound cold, but everyone handles death differently. Sarah's neighbor took her reluctance to stay by John's sickbed as a lack of caring. Once all the facts were revealed, Mrs. Gilbert may have been right. But in that moment, not knowing Sarah may have had a hand in her husband's suffering, a reaction to the death of a loved one that isn't how you or anyone else believes you should react, shouldn't be considered indifference or guilt. Sarah Whiteling did try to help her husband at one point while he was ill, and this illness lingered for weeks. She called a doctor to their house, but didn't share everything she knew about John's condition. Sarah later told police her husband John died as a result of suicide. She said he'd ingested rat poison intentionally because he could no longer stand the suffering from being in pain all the time. But if he were to die as a result of the rat poison, the doctor couldn't know because John Whiteling's insurance policy had a clause indicating it wouldn't pay out if the insured died as a result of suicide. Clearly, if she was worrying about his insurance policy, Sarah must have believed John was going to die. John Whiteling actually had two insurance policies. Combined, they totaled $220. Today, that's valued at a little over $6,000. That may or may not sound like a lot of money. It's not like murderers we hear about today when someone kills their spouse, then everyone finds out they had a fucking half-million-dollar life insurance policy on their husband or wife. But $6,000 can keep the electric on. It could pay for groceries, cover rent, or a mortgage payment. It can help you get by until you figure out something else. That $6,000, which was about 220 bucks in 1888, meant a great deal to Sarah Whiteling. John Whiteling died on Friday, March 30th, 1888. The cause of death was determined to be severe bowel inflammation. There's no mention of suicide or poison. The doctor who attended John had no reason to suspect anything other than his diagnosis. And that was it. Sarah was now a widow. She was left to raise two young children alone. Until April 24th, less than four weeks later, when her eight-year-old daughter, Bertha, passed away. Bertha Whiteling was described as a beautiful, sweet little girl. Those who knew her at Webster School said she was a favorite among children and teachers. Bertha wasn't sick while John was ill. This wasn't a contagious illness that swept through the Whiteling family, unless murder could be called contagious. According to Detective Geyer, a Philadelphia detective who took Sarah Whiteling's confession on Monday, June 11, 1888, Sarah used to take in people's washing to earn money and supplement John's income working in a cigar factory. The washing was her only source of income after John died, and yet she stopped that work because she was able to live off John's inheritance. 
She quickly started living well. She treated herself to a gold watch and chain. Sarah Whiteling really liked having money. She liked it so much, she took out insurance policies on her children right after the death of her husband and began poisoning Bertha, her eight-year-old daughter. Although it was believed she still had plenty of money from John's inheritance, when Bertha got sick and neighbors implored Sarah to get a doctor, get medicine, do something, do anything to help your child, Sarah Whiteling said she had no money at least not at her disposal. She claimed she deposited her husband's life insurance proceeds in a savings account, and that savings account required two weeks' notice for withdrawal. And that was bullshit. Her neighbors had no idea Bertha was sick because Sarah dosed her with rat poisoning. But they did know Sarah Whiteling had a premonition Bertha would die. She told her neighbors this horrible, foreboding sentiment right after her husband John died. Sarah wasn't psychic, unless you consider someone planning to murder their family and spreading out the deaths a few weeks to be psychic. Sarah was setting the stage for what was to come. Both John and Bertha Whiteling were treated by the same doctor. Like John, Bertha suffered intestinal issues. Dr. Smith visited Bertha. He prescribed medication, which Sarah Whiteling was instructed to give Bertha a few times a day for gastritis. Instead, Sarah fed Bertha a regular dose of rat poisoning, which meant she suffered in agony like her stepfather. If there were any questions about Bertha's final days or even hours, Sarah Whiteling made sure to include those details in her confession, which was printed in its entirety on Wednesday, June 13, 1888 in the Philadelphia Inquirer. The headline read, Appalling Revelation. Mrs. Whiteling tells how she killed her children. The wretched woman relates the story in circumstantial detail, but denies that she poisoned her husband. I read this woman's confession, as if I wasn't already disgusted. The bit about buying a gold watch the day after her husband's funeral was appalling. I skipped the details about her family's suffering. Bertha Whiteling died on April 24, 1888. Her little brother Willie, not much more than two years old, died a month later on May 26th. In her confession, Sarah Whiteling stood fast to the story John willingly ingested rat poison in an effort to end his life. There's nothing to prove or disprove that claim. She bought the poison. She knew about a young woman in the neighborhood who died months earlier from intentionally ingesting rat poison. There's nothing to indicate John Whiteling wanted to end his life other than Sarah's claims. It's more likely Sarah said that to the police, expecting it might make a difference. When Willie Whiteling developed the same symptoms as his sister and father, it wasn't Dr. Smith who attended him, as he had the rest of the family. Smith lost two patients in the same family within a month of one another and probably needed a little distance from the Whiteling family. So there was a new doctor that attended Willie Whiteling. He knew of the deaths of Willie's sister and father, but he didn't connect them to Willie's illness. Nor did he think there was anything suspicious when Willie Whiteling died from what was diagnosed as congestion of the bowels. I don't know, this doctor sounds like a fucking quack. I realize it's 1888, but this was the same person in the same family to develop the same severe intestinal disorder. So severe, in fact, it killed him just as it killed his father and sister within the last two months. And there's nothing suspicious about that? Oh, and mom is fine. No bowel problems there. The coroner was the first person of any authority to wonder what the fuck was going on in the Whiteling household. I say the first person because the neighborhood on Catawalder Street felt certain they knew what was happening. But what could they do to stop it? 
Coroner Ashbridge took it upon himself to get the deputy coroner to begin an investigation. They spoke to Sarah Whiteling, who told them her family died as a result of natural causes. That was a quote from her interview with the coroner. Their home was inspected for contamination. The pipes were inspected. Nothing was found, including the rat poison. It was surprising the deputy coroner had the authority to make an arrest because that's who arrested Sarah Whiteling. For three days, Coroner Ashbridge spoke with Sarah. He encouraged her to unburden her soul and tell everything she knew about the deaths of her children, but he couldn't get anything out of her. Finally, the police were able to step in, and you could tell they were pissed, even back in 1888. Reading an interview with the chief of detectives for Philadelphia Police, he made it very clear he was not happy with the coroner's office stepping in first delaying the arrest for three days, then conducting their own interviews and not getting a confession. From what the chief said, it sounded like Coroner Ashbridge could have blown the investigation. Certainly today, his conduct would have been a violation of Miranda rights. The confession might have been considered coerced. There's probably all sorts of other civil rights violations here of which I'm not even aware. But again, this is 1888. On Monday, June 11th, two weeks after Willie's death, Sarah Whiteling spoke to Detective Geyer of the Philadelphia Police and unburdened her conscience. Even before her confession, the Philadelphia Police were working the streets. They talked to neighbors, the local druggist, anyone who was willing to talk. And the neighborhood around Cadwalder Street had a hell of a lot to say. They shared their suspicions. They shared details about Sarah Whiteling's behavior before and after the deaths of her husband and children. For example, remarking that a garland, which the girls at Bertha's school made for Bertha's funeral, should be preserved for Willie, as she didn't think he had very long to live. Some neighbors even believe Sarah Whiteling poisoned a child in the neighborhood by lacing a piece of candy with rat poison. She did this so that it wouldn't look like the only people getting sick lived in her house. That was something else the police began to investigate. All of this gave the police enough evidence to request exhumation of all three victims. 38-year-old John Whiteling, 8-year-old Bertha Whiteling, and 2-year-old Willie Whiteling. What do you think the coroner found in all three bodies? Yeah, arsenic from rough-on-rats rat poison. Sarah bought that from the corner drugstore, where the druggist told her to be careful because this stuff was dangerous to humans, too. Sarah told police her husband attempted to take his own life before 1888. She claimed her brother-in-law told her as much at John's funeral, but there was no follow-up with John's brother to validate this conversation. She also told police John had been ill off and on and sometimes couldn't go to work. Well, that was certainly true for the last few weeks of his life before he died, because he was ingesting a regular dose of arsenic. Police believed Sarah Whiteling fed it to him without his knowledge. Why kill her children? Sarah Whiteling told Detective Geyer a few weeks after John's funeral, she decided to poison herself. Although around the same time, Sarah told a neighbor she thought she'd marry again soon. She bought a second bottle of rat poison and began giving Bertha doses, which she told her daughter were medicine. Then a few weeks later, she followed the exact same process with Willie. In her confession, Sarah Whiteling said her motive for killing Bertha, whom everyone called Bertie, was, and this is a quote, Bertie might grow up to be sinful and wicked. Sarah said she was sinful so young, and I didn't want her to grow up and become a great sinner. What was so wicked about this eight-year-old little girl? According to her mother, she'd stolen pennies and a pocketbook from her teacher. 
Yet reports about this little girl indicate she was beloved at her school. She was a favorite among her friends and her teachers. Her family struggled with financial difficulties. Maybe Birdie did steal her teacher's purse. Was that wicked? Did she deserve to die because of it? Absolutely not. Sarah Whiteling admitted to taking out insurance policies on both children soon after John's funeral. For Bertha, she received $125, which today is about $3,500. And for Willie, she received $50, so about another $1,400 in today's money. She had no motive to give police for killing Willie other than to say he was in the way. She couldn't work if she had to watch a baby. She didn't have anyone to watch Willie, so he had to go. Sarah Whiteling told Detective Geyer she'd be able to care for herself and get a job, probably be okay if she didn't have the kids. And she made a point of saying she did not kill her family for the insurance money. There are conflicting reports about Sarah Whiteling while she awaited trial, at least in the early days of her incarceration. Initially, it was reported she was so overcome with grief for what she'd done that she had to be sedated, which back in those days meant opium. But within a day or two, it was also reported Sarah understood her situation and behaved calmly while in prison. She ate well, slept well, never appeared to be suffering any emotional distress over her circumstances or the loss of her family. Maybe both initial reports were true, either because she came to terms with her situation or she ran a spectrum of emotions. After those early reports, everything about Sarah Whiteling indicated she was of sound mind. She was attended by two different ministers, multiple doctors. Almost everyone who interviewed Sarah or examined her said the same thing, at least before her trial. She didn't seem like a person suffering from insanity. But we have to remember mental health issues weren't diagnosed or really understood very well back in 1888. I'm not saying Sarah was insane or she wasn't. Based on my research, almost everyone believed her to be rational and sane, fully aware of the decisions she made and the consequences of those decisions. She knew she was killing her family. She purposely spread out her crimes. She delayed the murders of her husband and both children, believing their deaths would appear to be of natural causes if they didn't happen simultaneously. This sounds like a calculating human being, and she could have still had a mental health disorder, or she could have been a seriously heartless individual who just really wanted money, and this seemed to be the easiest way for Sarah to get it. On November 28, 1888, Sarah Whiteling was found guilty of murdering Bertha Whiteling. During her trial, there were physicians who testified she must have been insane. What sort of woman, what sort of mother would commit these horrible acts? And there were also physicians who testified to her sanity. How could an insane person plan something in such detail? There's probably some truth in both diagnoses. At that time in Pennsylvania, the punishment for murder was death by hanging. And that's the sentence Sarah Whiteling was given on December 23, 1888. Sentencing was delayed a bit as her defense attorneys attempted to secure Sarah a new trial, but there were no grounds to warrant another trial. The evidence against her was so damning, as was her confession. The judge praised both the defense and the prosecution. 
The district attorney in his closing argument spoke about the character of women. He encouraged the jury to see Sarah Whiteling as a mother, a sister, a daughter. But there was no getting around a guilty verdict. And with a guilty verdict, there was no way for the judge to get around the sentence he was required by law to administer. Judge Allison addressed Sarah Whiteling and passed down her sentence. The facts of your crime were not only denied by your counsel, but confessed by you. These confessions disclosed willful, deliberate, and premeditated purpose to destroy life, and your motive for doing so was stated without reserve. But beyond this confession, the testimony disclosed the fact that you profited by the death of each of your victims. It was also clearly proved by the postmortem examination that your victims died of arsenical poisoning. The only defense which was or could be made for you was that of insanity. After careful re-examination of the evidence, I am unable to find anything that would have justified a verdict of not guilty on the grounds that you were not a reasonable and accountable person when you destroyed your daughter Bertha. The sentence of the court is that you, Sarah Jane Whiteling, be taken to the jail of the County of Philadelphia, and that you be taken from there to the place of execution, and you be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and may God have mercy upon your soul. Other women had been put to death in Pennsylvania, but it hadn't yet happened in Philadelphia. In 1888, what could have spared Sarah Whiteling from the gallows was a diagnosis of homicide mania. According to the Cambridge Journals of Medical History in their paper Diagnosing Homicidal Mania, Forensic Psychiatry, and the Purposeless Murder, the first recorded acquittal because of the diagnosis of an unsound mind dates back to 1505. Forty-five years before Sarah Whiteling's trial, the McNaughton Rules were developed in 1843 to establish a legal standard of insanity. The paper diagnosing homicidal mania was an incredible rabbit hole that brought me to something called the Old Bailey Papers. You can take a look at these yourself online at oldbaileyonline.org. Bailey is spelled B-A-I-L-E-Y. This is a written record of all court proceedings from London's Central Criminal Court between 1674 and 1913. Prior to 1843, definitions of insanity or mania could differ depending on the physician, and interpretations differed depending on the jury. Common man expected people suffering from mania to exhibit certain behaviors, and it was difficult for laypersons to accept the idea someone could be insane if they didn't look or act in a way others believed to be a demonstration of insanity. So what is the McNaughton Rule? I'm going to read it verbatim so I don't get it wrong. The McNaughton Rule states that to plead insanity, the accused must be laboring under such a defect of reason from disease of the mind as to not know the nature and quality of the act he was doing. Or if he did know it, he did not know what he was doing was wrong. In 1843, a man named Daniel McNaughton tried to assassinate the Prime Minister of England because he believed the government was trying to persecute him. This wasn't true, but he believed it to be true because he suffered from a mental health disorder. Instead of shooting the prime minister, McNaughton actually shot the prime minister's secretary. It's great there was finally a reason to establish guidelines for insanity, whether someone is responsible for their actions or not. But it's a shame Victorian courts didn't see a need for this definition until someone tried to kill the prime minister. 
The McNaughton rules would have played a part in Sarah Whiteling's evaluation. And although two doctors called her insane during her trial, if you look at her actions and her crimes through the lens of the McNaughton rules, the definition of insanity does not apply. Sarah Whiteling both knew the nature of the acts she did, knew they were wrong, and knew they would result in the death of her children. Yet she did it all anyway. Members of a women's advocacy group in Philadelphia, the Society for the Aid of Female Prisoners and Prevention of Capital Punishment in the Case of Women, tried to get Sarah Whiteling's death sentence commuted to life. They appealed to the governor. James Beaver was the governor of Pennsylvania at that time. He'd served in the Civil War, survived after being shot four times. He was also appointed to the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. Between her defense attorneys and advocacy groups acting on her behalf, Sarah Whiteling received stays of execution until Saturday, June 22, 1889, when Governor Beaver said he could no longer interfere in the law of Pennsylvania. And the law said Sarah Whiteling was to be hanged. Every report about her execution read the same way. Sarah Whiteling was resigned to her fate. She felt her death was like being set free. She would no longer be in prison, and as she said soon after her arrest, she'd see her husband and children in heaven. Her execution wasn't public. It was attended, obviously, by the police, Detective Geyer, who took her confession, her defense attorneys, the coroners, and a few members of the media. Sarah Whiteling walked up the stairs on her own. She held herself with composure until the moment the platform dropped out from under her feet at 10.07 a.m. on the morning of Tuesday, June 25th, 1889. If Sarah Whiteling committed these crimes today, would she be sentenced to life in prison? If she was convicted of first-degree murder in Pennsylvania, which means an intent to kill, she could still be sentenced to death, although the state doesn't carry out the death penalty anymore. She would likely have been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Maybe her defense attorneys and the right doctors could have proven her not guilty as a reason of mental defect, and she'd spend the rest of her life in a psychiatric hospital. Would she be considered a family annihilator? Maybe not, because she's female. And killers who are labeled family annihilators are usually men. And she didn't kill everyone at once. She is a serial killer. She committed filicide. And if this happened today in 2019, I'd be just as shocked as I am over details that are 130 years old about the first woman hanged in the city of Philadelphia. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.